Hey everybody, this is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com and I just listened to a wonderful discussion between um, MMT economist Rohan Gray and Austrian economist Robert Murphy on The Robert Murphy Show. Two and a half hour discussion, but honestly one of the most um, interesting ones, most interesting economic discussions I've heard in a while. Um, I must say, by far, out of anyone I've heard talk on MMT, Rohan Gray um, is able to paint the picture of sort of the cohesive mindset of MMT proponents better than I've heard anybody else do so. So what they're trying to say is much clearer than it was before. Um, and my purpose in this episode is just to kind of recap um, that that expression. And I'll, I'll give some of my own critiques, but I think Robert Murphy could probably do that better than I could and will probably be doing follow-up episodes where he'll do so. So do subscribe to the Robert Murphy episode, uh, show if you like that. But overall, extremely fascinating episode. Um, a lot of the basics, you know, I was familiar with with MMT, basically the idea that um, uh, money, uh, basically that uh, government kind of in modern time, well, not modern times, but basically in, in, the, in modern monetary systems, which is not necessarily where the modern comes from. You can listen to the podcast where they talk about where the modern comes from. But in modern monetary systems, essentially money is fiat in the sense that it's not tied to any particular commodity or anything. It's essentially, in a, in a roundabout sense, a debt of government. Okay, so essentially the government spends money into existence and the demand for money in turn comes from the need to use it because the government enforces rules that tender, that basically force you to need money. So you got to pay taxes in dollars. So there's a demand for dollars. You all basically in in U.S. legal systems, um, dollars can be treated as legal tender for any contract. So there always has to be some sort of liquid, you know, dollar value to every contract. So that way if someone wants to not meet their end, there's a cash value they can pay to exit that contract. These things all create demand for dollar. Okay. So essentially the... That's just sort of the nature, sort of where this modern money comes from. And then again, you can you can talk about sort of like, oh wait a second. Then the kind of argument always is like, okay, well that's not necessarily where money came from because the U.S. didn't start out with just sitting there saying, hey, we have dollars that we're going to just tax. Um, but there was a gold standard, and we went off the gold standard. And, you know, this is whole this historical discussion, which I think they which they go into in the interview, which was pretty interesting. Um, but I mean, where I felt the interview got really interesting was more talking about the inflationary. Because usually criticism of MMT is that, like, yes, the government can print money. The gov- so the government theoretically could spend as much money as it wants. That's not necessarily a new idea. Like, the government technically won't go bankrupt because all of the U.S. government's debts are denominated in U.S. dollars. That's different than necessarily, like, European governments with the EU, where their debts are denominated in a currency they don't control. So if you're Germany, your debts are denominated in, in uh, euros, but the euros are controlled by the European Central Bank, which is not a, which is not as closely affiliated to the German government as, let's say, the Federal Reserve is to the U.S. government. Okay. Cool. So, is sort of the inflationary pressure. So basically, the typical argument is: okay, if government spends more money, that's just inherently inflationary. Because they're, they're essentially spending new money into existence. So if the government prints new money, there's new money in existence. That money circulates. That results in the buying of things and pushes up. That 
additional ability to consume or to purchase is going to show up somewhere in the economy and cause prices to increase. If the government borrows money, okay, if there's other people looking to borrow money, then more than likely the Federal Reserve will essentially buy up the excess treasuries because the, the Federal Reserve pretty much at the end of the day acts as a market maker in treasuries. They make sure there's always a liquid market in treasuries. So they're the buyer and seller of last resort. Um, so basically there's no one else to buy the treasuries. The Fed will jump in there and buy them um, to keep interest rates for U.S. treasuries where their targets are. So in a sense that if whether the government borrows or the government spends uh, money into existence, you know, there's this, there's this new money circulating uh, that can have inflationary pressures. Um, and then the pushback from Rohan Gray was essentially that this is just sort of one, these are just two different instruments, dollars being created and spent versus bonds being issued. These are two instruments for payment, but there are all sorts of other instruments. Essentially, when private entities borrow money, that can essentially be inflationary as well. And it's not saying that everything is equally inflationary, but let's say you're a corporation, you issue a billion dollars in bonds. So you receive a billion dollars and they're building a bunch of factories. Okay. That you've essentially just created this sort of new round of consumption. So then the pushback is, well, if you're a private actor, if, if a company were to borrow a billion dollars, they would have to buy it from an existing... There has to be a billion dollars to borrow. And... And then being someone who worked in finance for a while, uh, this next part that Rohan Gray goes into was, was I, uh, I, de- I, I certainly appreciate it in the sense that really the financial industry doesn't really need the billion dollars to create the let, allow that transaction to happen depending on its business. So imagine, so imagine to give you a microcosm, imagine that I'm going to buy a billion dollars worth of stuff from you and at the same exact time, you buy a billion dollars of stuff from me. So technically, we've just consumed $2 billion worth of resources, but no money's really changed hands because it nets out. So there's a consumption of resources that is inflationary in the sense that there's less resources relative to the demand and ability for people to pay, which is going to cause prices to go up. So there is that resource burn, but then there is... Um, but again, there's no net sort of changing of cash per se. So you could, you know, if you had $1 billion, you could facilitate that $2 billion of expenditure because the transactions that out. And that's generally how a lot of financial institutions try to structure their transactions. They're constantly trying to create transactions on both sides that offset each other because it allows them to be able to do a lot more with the same amount of money. So to the extent that banks can do that, that is essentially creating purchaseability or, or the ability to consume, which can be inflationary, can drive prices up. And also that it's also just about individual action. So you can't sit there and say, hey, we're going to print a million dollars and know that the price of milk is going to go up because the question is who gets those dollars, what they can do with those dollars. Some prices may go up, but it also depends. So one example they used was Bill Gates um, selling a billion dollars of Microsoft bonds. Or Microsoft stocks. Okay, and it's like, would that increase the price of milk? And Rohan Gray's argument was no, because chances are the people who were going to buy the, that, those Microsoft assets off of Bill Gates, had they not had those particular assets to purchase, 
then they would have purchased some other investment assets. So they might have bought some other bond or some other stock, not necessarily milk. Like milk wasn't their alternative. So, you know, it's where the price increases or let's say if the government, if the government, the Federal Reserve were to go in there and do the same thing. It's like, again, the what is the likely alternative of the people receiving the money or the people who have the money if they didn't do X transaction? It's not, not necessarily always consumer goods. So point is, is like, and again, this, this gets back to sort of like what is inflation? And here the conversation was very strictly like inflation referring to sort of increases in the prices of goods. Okay, so when I say inflation for the purposes of this, I'm not getting into sort of like is inflation an increase in the money supply or strictly I'm talking about price increases at the moment. So that was all interesting because I've thought about that before too. Um, I've done videos about sort of, you know, how you have to look at money supply geographically in the sense that because there's so many dollars out there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the money supply of X ta- of small little town uh, in Georgia is the same as the money supply in New York, thus kind of explaining sort of the difference in prices between somewhere like New York City, where there's probably a lot of money circulating, so a lot of ability to purchase, um, versus maybe, you know, some small town somewhere where you don't have as much money circulating, which can affect local price levels. I've also talked about what you buy. I've talked about digital goods in the past where, you know, buying an additional life on Angry Birds doesn't necessarily decrease any actual resources because you're paying angry, angry birds either way. So if you're paying all these like microtransaction games, which are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, every time you spend money on those, you're not necessarily lowering uh, the supply of goods or resources. So you can say, hey, you're using electrical power or server space, but technically those games you can play for free. So you're already using the resource. Um, you're buying something that's unlimited in the free usage of that resource. Okay, you're going to use the server space. You're going to use the bandwidth. Regardless, buying the extra life on Angry Birds just allows you to have an extra life on Angry Birds. But you've paid like a dollar to do so. Um, so that kind of got me thinking. Uh, because again, that, what that means is that if more people spend their money on digital goods, depending on what kind of digital goods they are and whatnot, that could also dampen inflationary effects, depending on what people's consumption behavior versus if people were buying like fruits and metals, things that aren't necessarily as, that are more scarce. So that means hitting that point of consumption where you push upward pressure on prices can get you get there faster. So there's all these really interesting nuances in the inflation debate. And the reason why that was in there was meaning, the point of that discussion was that it's, if you were to just double the money supply tomorrow, you you can maybe make an assumption that there'll be some price increases in inflation, but how drastic it will be, how dire it will be, where it will be, these are things you can't predict. It's, and again, this is something that's not necessarily new either. Um, Richard Contillon, you know, right, way before, like before even Adam Smith, would talk about sort of these Contillon effects, where basically you just don't know where the new money is going to go. Okay, so so at this point, you're kind of getting into this agreement where, yes, there are inflationary effects, and inflationary effects don't just purely come from government. And this is where we start getting to, like, Hyman Minsky. Um, in his economic work, he talked a lot about the effect of exogenous money. Now, what's exogenous money? So most people kind of just think of the narrative that the Federal Reserve makes money when the government needs money, and that's kind of how it works. But the Federal Reserve 
it kind of goes both ways. Sometimes the banks will just will money into existence because the way the Federal Reserve works is that banks have to have 10% reserves to meet the reserve requirement. And if they can't, if they don't have the money to meet it at the end of the day because they lent out too much money, they can borrow it from the Fed, assuming they have the right collateral. So what happens is that banks oftentimes will just lend money. They will lend more money than there's available to lend with this knowing that at the end of the day, they can just borrow what's needed either from the Fed funds market or, if not the Fed funds market, from the Federal Reserve at the discount window. So theoretically, the bank is the one who made the decision to expand the money supply. The Federal Reserve is just facilitating that decision, okay, because they want to maintain the stability of the financial system. So in a sense that, you know, the bank, if it lends aggressively enough, can take the Fed hostage. Um, And that's sort of what Kyman Miski is talking about um, in the sense that it's not just, okay, the government deciding to increase the money supply. Sometimes it's the private market forcing uh, the 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 money issuer to have to expand um, the mediums uh, for financing expenditures. Okay, because the banks issue the credit, and then in order to facilitate their own rules that exist, um, far as what does a solvent bank look like, the Fed will just make the loan. Cool. So again, and I think that's important to understanding because that's a lot of the work of Hyman Minsky really undertails. A lot of the critique that um, you know, a lot of modern sort of more left-wing economists take, which is again very much on the predication of sort of the instability theoretically that financial markets create due to that whole idea of exogenous money. Okay, so it's it's different than sort of like a little bit of a different take than let's say going back to like either Keynes or um, oh my God, I'm forgetting what's his name. Um, also in the 30s, deflation. Um, Uh, It'll come back to me at some point. But what happens is, so this is this then, so basically two things are established. Yes, theoretically, the government can spend as much of it wants if it wants, but then they're both in agreement that inflation can be a problem. Now, generally as a, 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 so basically where Rohan Grave kind of falls on says, okay, well, you know, the government should spend more on public goods and it's okay to fund that however it needs to fund that, whether it prints more money or issues more bonds or whatever. But the way you offset the inflation is through regulations on the creation of exogenous money. So tighter regulation on banks so that way they can't sort of will money into existence and, and kind of coerce the Fed into having to support them or otherwise allow the financial system to become unstable. So that's essentially sort of Rohan Gray's point of view. So it's not that he just wants the, the government to spend endlessly forever without any kind of offset. To so him, is the offset is the private financial system. Um, you know, essentially, you offset the inflation of, pub, of, of, of public services with, with by deflating the expansion of sort of private financial instruments. And that's a coherent point of view. Not that I agree with it, but it's a coherent point of view. I, I mean, I can I can see the mechanism um, and how it offsets. Again, this also, again, I think assumes a lot. Um, and that's always the issue. Like, everyone, you know, when you're on any kind of point of view, you, you have to make certain assumptions about how people are going to behave. And that's going to lean to sort of what your poly, policy subscription is going to be. 
So in this case, you know, you're assuming that government is going to determine what these perfect public services are, implement them perfectly, thus they'll end up yielding, you know, a you know, these scale. Because I mean, yeah, if you had a good healthcare system that was kind of executed in, in well with well-meaning people, theoretically there is a lot of value to that in a sense. You could actually have a scale and an ec- economic benefit to it theoretically. I mean, it's not implausible to imagine. Okay, but generally as a free market person, uh, my my bigger issue is one, I mean, lack of markets that would, you know, prevent innovation, but also the fact that I just, that government actors oftentimes are either corrupt or they're not necessarily the, the, the best people to implement these things. So you don't get uh, the most well-intended implementation or the best implementation um, just because of the nature of politics. So in that case, while theoretically you can imagine this perfectly executed healthcare system, you can imagine this perfectly educated uh, public education system, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that can have benefits. Again, it's not hard to imagine that if you're a small business, that if you don't have to pay money for your health care for your employees or if you're an employee, you know, you don't have to worry about health care, you, you know, you, you're more freer to jump from job to job to find the job that you want. Um, you know, there are – you can imagine those benefits. But again, the question is what the real cost will be um, in a realistic – realistically like a, a – a, when you factor in sort of the realistic imperfections of the system, okay? Um, and on top of it is just also, then there's just the moral side of it, like the controls you have to put on people to to make such systems work because you're basically, you're limiting their alternatives, you're limiting their options, and, you know, you're limiting what free people can necessarily do on the other, co- on the other side of the coin. Cool. But I mean, essentially, Rohan Gray is making an assumption that these things, that you can find the right people to implement these things, and they can be implemented better than not. Um, I'm much more skeptical of that. Um, And just because there are systems across the world that have been able to to hopple, basically being able to survive, okay, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that the cost has been, you know, truly has offset sort of, has been less than the gains. And then also, too, thing, there's other factors as far as, you know, other countries and things. They're generally smaller in size. There's a lot of different dynamics that it just makes it hard to kind of compare uh, apples to apples, okay, creating a healthcare system to, the, to something to the size of the United States. And I've done other episodes on healthcare. Um, where I get more deep into that. But the point is, like, the issue isn't necessarily the financing. If the, gov- if the U.S. government wanted to finance such a system, it could. There would be issues of inflation. But one way you can kind of limit that would be to regulate the financial markets in a way where basically the pressure on the money supply from financial markets or on growth from the money supply to help offset the growth of the money supply due to more government spending on public goods. That's essentially what, what Rohan Gray is saying. At least as best as I understood it. But again, it's just saying that people can create their own inflation. Because, I mean, think about it. If we create Bitcoin and suddenly people are willing to take Bitcoin for the purchase of things, you are still consuming from the pool of resources, which means there's less resources, but more ability to purchase because now Bitcoin's an additional medium versus cash, check, you know, uh, other ways of, of paying for goods and services. 
So that can also have an upward pressure because it's not like any individual medium of of exchange. It's sort of the the price. It's everyone's ability across all medium exchanges to consume resources that will determine sort of the relationship between the amount of purchasable resources relative to any medium of supply. So basically, people buying more stuff in yen can end up raising the price for people buying stuff in dollars because there's still less of the stuff they're buying. So you have to kind of – there's like micro nuances. So again, like the geographical thing or what is the people buying with the money? So like what is the alternative if – if you say, hey, they're not going to spend money on this, what are they going to spend money on? And then there's the fact that then there's sort of the macro consideration that technically all mediums of consumption or all mediums of exchange are still accessing the same sort of pool of resources, pool of purchasable goods, because generally something might be purchasable across multiple mediums. So this just kind of makes... And it's it's a very, from an intellectual point of view, I find this discussion extremely interesting. Again, from a practical standpoint, again, I always, I generally be I'm distrustful of systems that require an overabundance of nuance, calculation, and maintenance. Not because on paper they may not work. Okay, I can I can totally see uh, a plausibility to Rohan Gray's argument. Problem is, the more you need smart people to make the right things happen the less likely they will. Um, because oftentimes, the people who want to take advantage of the system don't let the smartest people get into power, who maybe would be able to manage the system the best. And oftentimes, the smart people who think they know they can do this, oftentimes take for granted what they don't know. Okay? Um, or take into consideration the things that you can't plan for. So, that, to me just makes me very skeptical of things that just need too much expertise to execute. I do think there's something to be keeping it simple. Okay. Um, but that's not necessarily a economic argument. Okay. That's not a saying, Hey, on paper, you can't economically argue X or Y. It's more of a, just a logistical issue based on just sort of the nature of, of just politics among among organizations. At, at the end of the day, generally people who rise to power in in politics aren't necessarily the aren't necessarily the best people. They're the most charismatic people. Um, sometimes the people who are just chosen by people who are already in power. Sometimes people who were a hero and and loved in one arena, but are not necessarily smart in other arenas. Um, so. And then these people then end up making decisions about who implements, and it's just it's it's a it's a stretch for me to believe that something of that scale, even if it was a private organization, uh, would be implemented correctly. Because again, this is when you do something of that scale, and I mean, imagine this: government's already kind of corrupt. So if you imagine if you do something on the scale of a Green New Deal, um, there's going to be people who want to be on the receiving end of that effort. And there's, there's going to be a huge incentive to, to figure out how to be on that. So then you start, you know, people start redefining what does it mean to be a green company or, you know, and suddenly companies that are not necessarily really benefiting anybody are getting receiving grants, receiving whatever. It's just it, it gets corrupted. So in that case, to me, it is safer to put a restraint. 
But in the same sense, I agree that that, that uh, private financial markets can expand. But it's it's not. I I still am less skeptical because at the end of the day, yes, uh, private financial institutions are trying to offset risks. They are trying to be as leveraged and put money to his use as much as possible because that's literally how they make money. They're still trying to identify productive enterprises. Now, to the extent that they don't, it is because we've outsourced a lot of the risk through bailouts, through a monetization of losses. And I agree with Rohan and Rob Mur- Bob Murphy that um, you know you need to get government out of sort of taking risk off the table. Uh, for private actors, okay. Actually, I really, I think, I don't think the government should be really in the in in the in the business of taking the risk off anyone's table, um, because I do think pricing of risk is important, and I do think insurance companies, when having the incentive to do so, do it pretty well. Um, but yeah, overall interesting discussion. It was just a real fleshed out. It's two and a half hours. I can't recap everything, but I think this is a good, good, hopefully this whets your appetite to go and listen to the full episode because I very much enjoyed it. My name is Alex Merced from alexmercedcoder.com. I mean, alexmerced.com. This is not my dev podcast. Um, but you guys have a great day. I'll talk to you guys later.